1: You're listening to Colorado Edition on K1C. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, July 15th. Thousands gathered in Boulder on Saturday to protest the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Moments of sadness, anger, and hope filled Boulder's Pearl Street Mall. K1C's Robin Vincent was there.
2: We will raise our voices. We are united.
1: As the temperature
3: neared the triple digits, people held signs that read, abortion is health care and women's rights are human rights. Democratic Congressman Joe Neguse, who represents Boulder and Fort Collins, addressed the crowd looking ahead to the midterms. We
4: are two senators away in the United States Senate from codifying Roe v. Wade. Not ten years from now, not five years from now.
2: Here in Colorado,
3: Governor Jared Polis issued an executive order last week protecting abortion providers and out-of-state patients. Still, speakers warned these policies could change with different leadership. Robin Vincent, KUNC.
1: Colorado has recorded nine monkeypox cases over the last three months. But health officials are worried the virus could spread fast if unchecked. To learn more, KUNC's Bo Baker spoke with Dr. Michelle Barron. Barron is the Senior Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control with UC Health.
5: What is monkeypox? Can you tell us a little bit about it and where does it come from?
0: Sure. So monkeypox is a virus. Um, and it's in the same family as smallpox or cowpox, which some people might be familiar with. And um, it's a virus that um, obviously can be associated with monkeys, um, but can also be associated with other types of rodents. And it typically has been um, found in countries in Africa where this exposure can occur between the animals and humans. And then there can obviously be person-to-person spread as well.
5: And how does it show up? Uh, what are some common symptoms?
0: Um, the original symptoms, or the initial symptoms, rather, are actually pretty non-specific. It's, uh, you know, flu-like symptoms. You may have fever, you may have chills, you may have body aches, you may feel tired. Um, and then you develop a very characteristic rash. And the rash is, uh, in the family of pox viruses, probably most people have seen somebody with chicken pox. So, it sort of starts with these like fluid-filled, raised lesions, and then they sometimes then can progress to where they have sort of a almost like a divot in the center of it and sometimes also look like potentially have like a black scar over it.
5: And is this serious? Does this pose severe health risks?
0: So there's different strains of this. The one that we're seeing currently that's spreading in the United States and Europe – doesn't have that level of severe illness it can still obviously cause some people problems but um, it's more i think of sort of disconcerting because of the the rash and the appearance of the rash
5: and should we be worried about widespread transmission
0: so the current epidemiology suggests that um, ongoing spread is probably more than we know And so I think there are obviously uh, concerns that this is going to continue to spread uh, quite rapidly, which is why I think there's a lot of attention being brought to this. There is some unique properties of the current outbreak. Uh, Men who are having sex with men are probably the most affected at this point, but certainly that could change as well.
5: Vaccines are available, but they're limited. Uh, What's the state supply look like and, and who can get them?
0: Yeah, so the state right now has been focusing their efforts on people that have been diagnosed and their direct contacts. So people that haven't become infected but likely will become infected because of the exposure. Um, I know they are working on that next phase to where individuals that are considered high risk for exposure will be offered the vaccine. And that is uh, hopefully going to be coming very soon.
5: And beyond the vaccine, uh, for those that might be at more risk, what can you recommend as, as prevention or protection?
0: I think probably awareness is the most important thing, is that um, these uh, rashes can sometimes look like other things. And so if you develop a rash, it's really important that you get it evaluated and potentially have testing for monkeypox indicated. indicate it. And then um, make sure that if there's others that might have been exposed to get access to vaccine.
5: And there is testing accessible, pretty accessible out there.
0: Yes. And so the testing is actually pretty simple. It's a swab with a standard cotton swab. And so I think the main thing is to have that um, Evaluation done. So a rash is occurring that you're not sure what it is, um, and you've never had it before. It's worth getting evaluated. And then the process after it's obtained, the specimen is obtained, it goes to the health department and gets tested. So you don't have to go to the health department. Most places, urgent cares, emergency departments, and primary care should be able to have those swabs that they need, and then they just need to make sure they get it processed right.
5: Dr. Michelle Barron, thank you so much for uh, explaining some of this and uh, for your time today. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Every Tuesday, k one Samantha Kuzia speaks with our colleagues over at the Colorado Sun about the local stories they're following. Earlier this week, she spoke with editor Larry Rickman about the Uinta Railroad, Denver Public Schools, and Potatoes.
2: Talk to me about the Uinta Basin Railroad. The Forest Service recently denied objections to it being built, and environmental groups are pretty worried about it.
4: Yeah, this is an interesting one. Reporter Jason Blevins has been following this battle over whether to allow train cars loaded with oil from Utah to connect with the National Rail Network. Jason says the U.S. Forest Service recently dismissed objections to the proposed new rail line in a section of roadless forest in Utah. That was a final regulatory hurdle for the railroad's backers. Environmental groups and others are worried that this waxy crude oil, which will be shipped in heated train cars, could pose a threat to the Colorado River and communities along the river corridor here in uh, in Colorado. If the railroad is built, it will connect the oil fields of Northeast Utah with Union Pacific Railroad track that runs along the river from Grand Junction and 200 miles of Colorado rail line. Jason says the battle over the rail line is not yet over. Environmental groups could still file a lawsuit objecting to the Forest Service final approval, and there's some pending lawsuits in Washington and Utah which could stop or slow the project.
2: Absolutely, thank you so much. And some staff in Denver public schools are looking for better pay and others are actually looking to unionize. Can you talk about what's been going on there?
4: So uh, Sun reporter Erica Brenlin has a story uh, about this labor unrest in in many Colorado school districts. She's written many stories about how school districts are facing a shortage of teachers and other workers. But now public school uh, paraprofessionals and other support staff members are asking for salary increase. These workers include uh, bus assistants, food service workers, campus safety officers, and Littleton that even includes educational sign language uh, interpreters. SOME ARE MAKING LESS THAN $16 PER HOUR WHICH THEY SAY ISN'T ENOUGH TO EVEN PAY THEIR RENT AND OTHER BILLS. THEY'RE NOW HOPING TO MAKE $20 AN HOUR. IN DENVER THESE WORKERS AS YOU MENTIONED CAN can JOIN A UNION BUT THEIR COUNTERPARTS IN OTHER METRO DISTRICTS DON'T HAVE THAT CHOICE AND ARE SEEKING UNION RECOGNITION FROM THEIR SCHOOL BOARDS. THESE ATTEMPTS TO UNIONIZE FOLLOW A LEGISLATIVE SESSION IN WHICH LABOR ORGANIZING BECAME A BIG ISSUE. COLORADO LAWMAKERS PUSHED THROUGH A LAW THAT ENABLES COUNTY EMPLOYEES in counties with less than 7,500 people to collectively bargain, but not strike.
2: Thank you. And then I'm going to apologize in advance for a potato pun, but it looks like there are some tuber trust issues going on right now. Colorado politicians are pretty excited that potato farmers can sell their products in more of Mexico, but the farmers themselves are still a little apprehensive. Can you tell us more about what's been going
4: on there? Hey, who knew potatoes could be so interesting? Uh, Reporter Jennifer Brown recently spent some time in Colorado's San Luis Valley, and she came back with this fascinating story about potato politics. As many of us know and appreciate, Mexican avocados are shipped throughout the United States to serve in in salads, guacamole, and other dishes. But Mexico makes it pretty tough for U.S. potato farmers to sell their crops south of the border. For the past 20 years or so, Mexico has allowed U.S. farmers to sell their potatoes Only in the first 16 miles south of the border and in Mexico potatoes grown there aren't affordable to everyone in fact potatoes are considered a vegetable for the middle class and higher. But in May the Mexican Supreme Court finally cleared the way for more affordable US potatoes to find their way to Mexico and that has farmers in the San Luis Valley pretty excited but also feeling cautious. Uh, San Luis Valley farmers sell nearly 1.5 billion pounds of fresh potatoes a year. They think they could double that to help feed Mexico, but only if the current rules actually stick. And many of the Colorado farmers have kind of been down this road before, and they're not so sure that's going to happen. Definitely a story we're going to continue to watch.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Larry. Larry Rickman is editor for the Colorado Sun. Sun journalists join us every Tuesday and Thursday to talk about the big stories they're following. You can find more of that reporting at coloradosun.com and kunc.org. Larry, thank you so much. Thank you. See ya.
1: Non-Police Response Program in Denver is expanding with more funding and staffing. This comes as many local communities are trying to figure out how to better handle mental health-related emergencies. A new study focusing on the impact of Denver's STAR program suggests it has reduced crime in the city. K1C's Beau Baker spoke with reporter Lee Patterson to learn more.
5: Lee, how does the STAR program work?
1: So, these are white vans staffed by
3: two people, both unarmed. There's a clinician and then there's an EMT. Low level 911 calls are diverted to this team. They're sent out instead of police. And they're trying to help the person in question, you know, maybe de escalating the situation or getting them reconnected with their medication instead of treating whatever is going on as a criminal
5: offense. And this program has gotten a lot of attention since it launched. What do the numbers show for its success? How broad is this program's reach?
3: Yeah, in the two years since it got up and running, the teams have now responded to 4,600 calls, and they've never had to call the police for backup due to any sort of safety concern. Last month, Denver City Council decided to expand the program's budget. So that means they'll be able to buy more vans, hire more people, and You're right. The STAR program has gotten a lot of media attention since it launched. I think that's in part because it's framed as a sort of solution to some problems with policing and also with how our society deals with mental health and addiction.
5: Last month, researchers from Stanford University published a study in the journal Science looking at the impact of the STAR program. Tell me a little bit about the research there.
3: Well the the premise is i think we know police everywhere respond to a lot of mental health related calls as well as you know low level emergencies someone acting strangely on the street corner for example we also know that this police response is expensive and it's not always effective what we don't know is much about the actual impact of non-police response programs like the STAR van. So I think the most significant finding in this study is that the STAR program reduced low-level crimes by 34% in the areas where it was operating in its first six months. And there are two reasons for this. Number one, fewer of these crimes were reported because the STAR first responders are trying to get people help instead of taking them to jail. So those crimes aren't being recorded as crimes. Secondly, researchers found that fewer actual crimes were taking place, period, even outside of STAR's operating hours. And you know, one theory there is that if people are getting help, they're less likely to reoffend. Now, I'd say the one last thing to note about the study is that it doesn't examine all impacts. Researchers, for example, they don't know what effect this service had on the well-being of the people that it serves, or if it increased trust at all between community members and city services.
5: So, this research seems to support the feeling that STAR has been successful and worth expanding. Has there been pushback to this idea? Where has the program not lived up to expectations?
3: There's been significant pushback on a variety of issues from the Community Advisory Committee. That's a group that um, tracks and watches and advises the STAR program, basically. And members have said that the city doesn't listen to this group, particularly around diversity and hiring for the people who actually staff the van and also the people who manage the program. Uh, Vinny Cervantes is the founder of Dasher. That's the Denver Alliance for Street Health Response, and he's on the advisory committee. In an email to me, he said that, for example, there is some confusion and distrust in the star program because it sometimes works with um, a new city program called SET, which is the Street Enforcement Team. That's an unarmed unit that deals with issues related to homelessness. So there's some tension and some mistrust there. Cervantes in an email wrote, quote, that while STAR has been successful, it's still a far cry from what our organization and broader movements to confront police violence have envisioned, unquote.
5: Interesting. Okay. Well, we know there's a number of response teams that exist for mental health calls. Some exist entirely within police departments. Others combine police and clinicians. And then there are the less common non-police response programs like STAR. Do any other Colorado communities have these programs in place?
3: Yeah. The city of Aurora already has a similar one up and running. Um, Boulder is in talks to launch a pilot program, as is Arvada's fire department. So there are a few in the works and likely more coming down the road.
5: KUNC's Lee Patterson telling us about Denver's STAR program and other local efforts to better respond to mental health crises. Lee, thanks for keeping us up to speed on all this.
2: You're welcome.
1: That's all for today on Colorado Edition. You can catch the Colorado Edition podcast every Friday, so please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thank you so much for spending time with KUNC's Colorado Edition. See you next week.